Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, we take a look at some of our favourite bits from the podcast over the year, from dark family secrets revealed by genetic testing to the secret scientific history of bird poop. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Well, folks, here we are in November 2020, although I can't be the only person who still feels it must be September, right? Well, either way, it's been a hell of a year, and I very much hope that you and your loved ones have made it safely through this far. Genetics Unzipped will be taking a break over the Christmas period, although we'll still be bringing you a couple more episodes of the Genetics Shambles and republishing a few of our favourite episodes from Series 1. In the meantime, I wanted to look back over a selection of my very favourite bits from 2020. It's an absolute privilege to make these podcasts, whether it's getting to talk to fascinating people for our interview episodes or delving back into the often murky history of genetics for our story-based shows. And of course, it's lovely to get feedback from our listeners all over the world. I know you're out there, so please do leave us your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or drop us a tweet at geneticsunzip to say hi. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to the Genetics Society for financially supporting Genetics Unzipped. Also, big thanks to all of our team at First Create the Media who make this podcast possible. Hannah Varrell for editing these episodes together and making them sound amazing, and also dealing with all my fluffs and bloopers. Emily Norvang for her fantastic in-depth research and scripting help. Georgia Mills for her expert additional reporting, Tabitha Dale for managing our Twitter account with Flair, Aaron Shaunuk for helping out with the publishing, Viv Andrews for transcription, and my awesome right-hand woman Sarah Hazel for operations support. Before we start, here's a quick word about another science podcast that you might enjoy. From stress to sleeping and body fat to fertility, our hormones impact almost every aspect of our daily lives. I'm Georgia Mills and I want to tell you about the brand new podcast series, Hormones, The Inside Story. We've all heard of hormones, but I can guarantee not like this. We'll be finding out about the controversies around hormone hijacking chemicals all around us in our environment. For some scientists at the opposite ends of the extremes, I think this is reaching the point of being more or less open warfare. We'll be asking whether doping should ever be allowed in sports. It'd be interesting to see how many people would want to watch that race, um, particularly if they knew that probably the lifespan of those athletes would be significantly shortened. Discovering if a common over-the-counter hormone can protect us from COVID-19. What's happened in recent years is that there's been a real explosion of the number of uh, studies that have looked at vitamin D. You know, you read a different vitamin D story each week. And most importantly, finding out why Labradors are so hungry all the time. You know, a Labrador whose owner says that from early in the summer, the dog will sit under the apple tree in the garden for hours on end because sometimes an unripe apple will fall and any food is better than no food. Plus, along the way, we'll be meeting some jet-lagged horses, stressed violinists, sheep testicles, Victorian sports stars and impossible sausages. Subscribe now so you don't miss a moment. Just search for Hormones, The Inside Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you like to listen. episode on hidden family secrets revealed by genetic testing, that's episode two of this season, was the most popular show of the year. 
I sat down with researcher Jack Nunn from La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, to talk about how his PhD project in genetics inadvertently ended up exposing the dark truth about an event in his family's history. So I'm, I'm a big believer in get your own house in order, you know, sort out your own backyard first and, and talk from personal experience. So I started doing a PhD about genomics and the working title was Genomics, Identity and Community, which was far too big and vague. However, I, I did think, well, I'd, I'll get my mum a DNA test because she wanted to find out who her grandfather was, etc. And she did find that out. She got some other unexpected results, though, which were quite interesting. I encouraged her to share her raw data from the, from the DNA test on GEDmatch, which is a, a free sort of open source way of sharing your raw data from different services. Someone got in touch with my mum on this service and said, I think we're related. And I said to my mum, you know, be careful, this could be a scam. And then other people started popping up and we started to triangulate the data. And it turned out that this person thought my mum was their half aunt. So this asked a few questions. Mm-hmm. So my mum actually discovered that she had a half-sister through this service. And so then other half-brothers and half-sisters started popping up online. This was quite unexpected. So after being in touch with a few of them, it actually uh, became apparent that my mum was conceived with a sperm donor. Uh, so this would have been in about 1948, 1949. And this was, in fact, the first place in the world that sperm donation was done, artificial insemination. And it so happened that one of the people who uh, was conceived by a sperm donor had, had made a couple of films about this, one called Offspring, one called Biodad, a guy called Barry Stevens in Canada. So suddenly we realised this wasn't kind of a scam on the internet. My mum was actually one of perhaps somewhere between 600 and 1,000 people conceived by this one man, Bertolt Wiesner. Oh, well, how, back, back up. So <laughs> there's a guy, he's working in a fertility clinic, he's donating his own sperm, and he's made 1,000 babies. Potentially. The records were purposefully destroyed. This is a time when... You know, the legal area was very... You know, the House of Lords was saying artificial insemination was the work of Beelzebub. The clinic was run by a woman called Mary Barton. She'd actually been to India and seen a lot of families that had trouble conceiving. And, of course, in those days, well, they just blamed the women. And anyone who knows anything about anything knows, of course, it can be either. So coming back to England, she worked to kind of help families conceive who were having difficulties. Bertolt Wiesner was an Austrian scientist who, in the 1930s, saw the way things were going. He didn't identify as Jewish, but the Nazis labelled him as that. He went to Edinburgh University and did a lot of the science around, you know, if you wee on a stick, you can tell if you're pregnant. That was sort of his work. They wrote a British Medical Journal article about their work, and they had a clinic that people could come. So my grandma, for example, so she went to this clinic. She used to work for the air ministry. When she got married, she was made to quit, and she was given something that was called a dowry payment. This is, of course, in the 1940s. (laughs) And that was sort of about a year's salary, and basically it was somewhere around that amount that was given to the clinic. I believe they did run a free clinic once a week for, for people too. And basically, the journal article said that they selected donors from intelligent stock. So we're talking about eugenics here too. And they, as far as we can tell, had sort of three main donors. 
one of whom was Bertolt Wiesner, another was a, a man called Derek Richter. And the details are not clear, so I won't speculate, but what we do know is that there are at least 20 half-siblings in touch now, and therefore I've got potentially you know, thousands of half-cousins. And so from starting a PhD with a working title as Genomics, Identity and Community, I suddenly find myself part of potentially the largest single ancestor cohort on planet Earth, which is quite strange. <laughs> I particularly enjoyed putting together episode five, Poop, Puss and the Manhattan Project, looking at the stories behind the names of the famous four building blocks of DNA, adenine, cytosine, thymine and guanine, or A, C, T and G. Today, these four initials are ingrained into the scientific lexicon and burned into the brains of anyone who's ever worked with or even just learned about genes, genomes and DNA. It's a code that's as inseparable from genetics as the double helix itself. It may be surprising to learn that scientists knew that DNA was made up of these four iconic chemicals long before its double helical structure was figured out. So when were they discovered? And how did they get their unforgettable names? To find out, we went back to the bird poop boom of the 1840s. It's the 1800s, and the global population is rapidly expanding thanks to modernisation. Many people, particularly in Europe and the US, are leading longer, healthier lives and not dying in quite such dramatic numbers as before. But bigger populations need more food, and centuries of increasingly intensive agriculture on limited farmland have begun to deplete the nutrients in many farmers' fields. To keep producing enough food to fill all these hungry bellies, they need a way to put nutrients for plants back into the soil and make it more fertile. In other words, they need fertilisers. Unfortunately, farmers in the 1800s couldn't just pop down the garden centre and buy some chemical fertiliser, because that hadn't been invented yet. Mainly, they relied on natural resources, like human and animal manure, and techniques such as crop rotation but these interventions could only do so much. Then, in 1805, the German naturalist and explorer Alexander von Humboldt brought back a strange substance from Peru that the indigenous population had been using to fertilise their fields for hundreds of years. This stuff turned out to be the solidified poop of a seabird called the guane cormorant, which flocked around Peru's rocky coastline. The dry coastal climate meant that the bird's poop known as guano, piled up on the shore together with the empty eggshells and bones of dead birds, hardening into impressive craggy islands rather than being washed away. If guano could help the Peruvian farmers maintain the fertility of their fields, why couldn't it do the same for the green and pleasant lands here in Britain? After a couple of years of successful field trials, William Mayer, a businessman from Liverpool, placed the first large order for this white gold and the guano boom began. This new era of agriculture wasn't quite welcomed by everyone, though. As might be expected from a cargo that's little more than dried bird excrement, when the guano ships reached English shores, the smell was so bad that the populations of nearby towns fled for the hills to get away from the stench. By the mid-1800s, guano was well known as the best fertiliser a farmer could get, and miners came from far and wide to harvest the stuff on the Peruvian shores. 
the demand for guano was so high that the guano cormorant was nicknamed the billion dollar bird. And the US passed laws stating that US citizens could claim remote islands for the country if they harboured the treasured bird poop. Countries even fought wars over access to guano. Unsurprisingly, scientists became very curious about what made guano so great. Their first observation was that guano cormorants ate an awful lot of fish. This high-protein diet meant that their poop contained a lot of nitrogen, a vital nutrient for plant growth, making it an excellent natural fertiliser. Next, researchers peered deeper into the poo, bringing forth a flurry of research and papers published in the 19th and early 20th centuries outlining the molecular components of guano. One such paper came from a German chemist named Julius Bodo Unger, who claimed to have isolated the double-ringed purine molecule xanthine from guano in 1844. Aha! But another chemist, Paul Einbrot, wasn't so sure. He pointed out that Unger's molecule didn't have the same chemical properties that had already been described for xanthine, so it couldn't be correct. Oh! Unger took a closer look. He published a new paper in 1846, fully describing this novel compound. He named it guanine, after its stinky source, oblivious at the time that he was naming one of the fundamental molecules of life after bird poo. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show. Every year, the Genetic Society runs the Heredity Fieldwork Grant Scheme, covering the travel and accommodation costs for researchers wanting to carry out a fieldwork project in genetics. In episode 12, our stay-at-home roving reporter Georgia Mills caught up with four intrepid explorers who'd been off on their travels in locations as exotic as New Zealand, Lanzarote and the Lake District to hear more about their research and what they learned out in the field. I particularly loved her interview with Cardiff University PhD student Ewan Stenhouse, who spent his fieldwork wrestling some rather angry birds. So hawfinch is the biggest species of finch in the UK. They're found in North Wales, the New Forest and like the border, so like the White Valley and the Forest of Dean. They look pretty evil. I think the best way to describe them would be, you know, the, the, uh, like the red birds out of Angry Birds? Yeah. Yeah, they look a little bit. They've got this kind of evil glint in their eye. Um, <laughs> they're, but they're, I mean, yeah, they're amazing. They're, they're really cool looking birds. You've got like massive bills. And their name in Greek, or their Latin name, which is Cocothraustes, Cocothraustes, actually means um, the one that can break the kernel. So they can crack like cherry stones and olive stones. Like they're, yeah, they're pretty powerful. Do you know what? I'm, I'm just looking up photos of them online at the moment. You're absolutely right. They do, they do have like angry eyebrows, don't they? They look like they can yeah, yeah, go over your they eyes. Yeah, absolutely furious. Yeah. But saying that, we still want to save them. So <laughs> tell me about your field yeah, work. How, true, yeah. how did that come into it? Okay, so um, my European fieldwork basically involved me initially sending off loads and loads of emails to different bird ringers in continental Europe to say what my project was about, like what I was doing, and if they could help me. So a few people from Denmark got in contact with me initially and said, yeah, we ring hawfinches uh, in the woods by my house or in my back garden you're more than welcome to come out and do some field work here. And it was the same in Germany as well. And 
it was really interesting because when I initially went out there, I didn't know what to expect at all. And I thought it was going to be very much like ringing was here in the UK, which is you getting up at four in the morning, you're sitting in a freezing cold car or even worse, like standing in the middle of the woods, just kind of waiting. But because these birds visit back gardens really regularly in continental Europe, which they don't hear, oh, fieldwork was great. It didn't really feel like fieldwork, to be honest, Georgia. It was me kind of sat in a nice warm house, in, especially in Denmark, uh, getting fed breakfast, all the cups of tea that I could handle. And we just kind of sat and waited for them to, to go into the nets in the back garden. And then once they were there, we just went out, extracted them. We take biometric data. And then the kind of really strange bit is I put it into a, uh, a brown paper bag and then I wait for it to do a poo. <laughs> So it's, yes, it's, yeah, it's really glamorous. It was basically from that fecal sample that I do all of my um, genetic work with. Okay, so how, how are the genetics of the poo coming into things? The best way to describe it would be basically this, this poo is my entire PhD, really. And that's a sentence I never thought I would say. <laughs> because you want to look at the diet of an animal, but you want to do it non-invasively. Collecting faecal samples is a really good way of doing that because we don't have to harm the birds. So faecal sample collection is a really good non-invasive way of collecting dietary information because obviously what the bird's been eating recently will be passed out in its poo. Brilliant. And so what kind of things did you find in the poo? What, what have they been eating? I'm currently working through the main analysis of my results. What we've found so far is that the number of different things so the number of dietary items that we found in Europe is a lot higher than in the UK. The most common thing we found was sunflower seeds. But that's because in order to bait the site to get hornfinches to come down from the trees, because they're notoriously shy and secretive, you basically have to give them an all-you-can-eat sunflower seed buffet for weeks and weeks and weeks before you even put up any traps. We also got, I mean, beach was there, so European beach, hornbeam, and then when I did the same analysis for invertebrates, it was just a lot of caterpillars, which makes sense because they're kind of big and squishy and full of nutrients and water. So it's been interesting to look at the diet and to compare the UK and European populations because there's a definite difference. Oh, right. So does this give us any clues as to how to um, bring back the hawfinch to Britain? Um, hopefully. So what we can do is working in conjunction with the RSPB, who are my uh, case partners, we can look at the diet and say, OK, so there's a really high frequency of occurrence of, say, like beech or hornbeam or this certain type of tree species or this species of invertebrate. Once we've got this detailed knowledge of the diet, we can start planting certain trees that will hopefully encourage them back. When you were sequencing the DNA, I know these sometimes they can crop up with quite surprising things. Did you find anything like very weird they'd been eating? Oh uh, yeah, a few things. So once you got rid of kind of the obvious human contamination, like, I don't know, raisins, the, the most interesting thing I found was quite a lot of birds have been eating cashews. Oh. Yeah. Now, as far as I'm aware, there aren't a lovely plantation of cashew trees growing in the middle of like the Forest of Dean or Snowdonia. So I think it shows that actually they're visiting garden feeders slightly more often than people think because people do make their own bird seed and people put all sorts out for garden birds. And it's been, um, it's almost like I'm getting a sneak peek into people's back gardens through the diet work. 
So it's mm. quite interesting. But yeah, I think cashew was probably the strangest one. Yeah, I got some uh, lemons and satsumas as well, oddly enough. And we mentioned earlier they got kind of, they got a mean look about them in this incredibly powerful beak. How was it working so closely with them and sort of having to handle them? Were they, uh, were they... No, it was painful. Good partners? Oh, painful. <laughs> yeah, it was painful. Um, because when you, you handle a bird, it's called like the ringer's grip. So you basically get its head in between your two index fingers. And in a cloth bag, you can normally feel where the bird's head is. So you can be really careful and gentle and kind of work your way around without getting your fingers bitten off. But because I'm putting in them, them in these paper bags, it's thicker. So you can't really feel where the bird's head is beforehand. So what you've basically got to do is just shove your hand in and then have like a little feel around. But obviously all the time, you can't see the bird's head. So you don't know where this beak is. And I actually showed my lab a video of me trying to extract a hawfinch out of the bag. And I didn't realise quite how much swearing was in it. Because once it clamps onto your finger, like it hurts. <laughs> it's, it, and it leaves a lovely little diamond shaped scar, like it's it's there for a good few hours yeah it's pretty impressive um because they're really, i mean they're powerful birds and yeah if it bites you especially on the knuckles like you you know about mm. it and they've got incredibly flexible necks i found so i'd be holding one quite happily and then i'd look away for a second and it would just somehow turn its head nearly, just full-on exorcist you yeah yeah exactly nearly 360 <laughs> degrees and just clamp onto my knuckle and then i'd look back <laughs> <laughs> you still got all your fingers yeah, just about, just about. <laughs> Sticking with birds, we had a lot of fun making episode one right back at the beginning of January, where we busted some myths about those famous icons of evolution, Charles Darwin's Galapagos finches. Here's how the story goes. Two days after Christmas, in the year 1831, at the tender age of 22... Charles Darwin hops on a boat named the Beagle and sets off from Plymouth Harbour on an epic round-the-world voyage. One of the stops is the Galapagos, a cluster of small islands around a 1,000 kilometres off the coast of Ecuador, where the young naturalist observes and collects a number of different finch specimens. Comparing the finches from each island, he notices that they're all broadly similar but with some varying features such as the size and the form of their beaks and the shape of their claws. Each one seems perfectly suited to the different foods available on each island. Seeds on one, nuts on another, berries on another and so on. Suddenly, it was crystal clear. Aha! The birds must have all descended from a common ancestor and then been isolated on each island, evolving separately to exploit the resources available. These diverse species became the inspiration for perhaps the greatest scientific idea of all time, the theory of evolution by natural selection, as detailed in his book, Origin of Species, which was finally published decades later. As a result, the birds became known as Darwin's finches, earning themselves a place in history as a true icon of evolution. Well, hold up just a second... Because while it's a nice tale, it's not actually true. It turns out that although Darwin did collect finches while he was in the Galapagos, he didn't pay much attention to them at the time. Initially, he believed that they were such a diverse set of birds that they couldn't possibly be closely related. 
he was much more interested in the links between species on the islands and on nearby continents, focusing instead on mockingbirds. When Darwin returned to England in 1837, he gave his finch collection to John Gould, a famous ornithologist. And it was Gould who pointed out to Darwin that the birds were much more similar than Darwin had first thought, belonging to 12 closely related but distinct species. With this revelation, Darwin realised that if the individual finch families were confined to different environments, this might account for the evolution of their different physical characteristics. Unfortunately, Darwin had been so uninterested in the finches at the time that he hadn't recorded exactly where he'd collected his specimens. Oh, no. He ended up having to talk to others who'd been in the Galapagos with him and who'd collected and properly labelled their own specimens to try and piece together where all the different species of finch had come from. Eventually, Darwin was able to put together enough evidence to support his wider theory that one species could transform into another over time. He published his comparison of finches in 1845, accompanied by the now iconic illustration highlighting the different beaks of the birds. He wrote, Seeing this gradation and diversity of structure in one small, intimately related group of birds, one might really fancy that from an original paucity of birds in this archipelago, one species had been taken and modified for different ends. Finally, I'd like to end with a clip from an interview with geneticist Sarah Tishkoff from the University of Pennsylvania back in episode 10. I was so lucky to be able to sit down and chat with her at a conference, remember those, about her work mapping the genetics of African populations. As the field of genetics grapples with its legacy of eugenics, racism and exploitation, some of which is, unfortunately, still very much with us, Sarah is committed to working together with, rather than on, the populations she studies. So the only reason that I am still doing this research after about 19 years is because we were really careful to do it in a sensitive way right from the start. That wasn't the easy way. At the time, there were a lot of people who weren't even getting permits, they weren't getting informed consent from people. They were sort of flying in and flying out. And we didn't want to do it that way. So the most important thing is that you have to have local collaborators. So we have people in each country who are trained as geneticists or as anthropologists, and they're key partners, so there has to be a partnership. And they're also going to be the ones who are going to make sure that you're doing this in a culturally sensitive way and uh, an ethical way. The other thing is, even though it's very time-consuming, we have to get permits at every country. And that means that we go through extensive ethical review at the level of the government. That is what takes the longest. So I would say usually between three to five years before we ever can start the field work. Wow. Just setting up permits, going through ethical review. The longest record was nine years. <laughs> so we don't take shortcuts, but I'm glad that we didn't because now we're able to continue this research and we're able, we wanted to have long-term relationships so we're able to go back to these same communities. So the other things we do, our team that does field work consists predominantly of Africans. When we're visiting a village, we always talk first to the village chief and we explain what we're doing and why we're doing it and what are the risks or the benefits or lack of benefits. If they agree, they'll often help us uh, with putting together a community discussion. 
we spend a lot of time answering questions and it, you know, we're often in places for long periods of time. This is not like we hop in, you know, one afternoon or morning and we just do this. It takes a long time. So yeah, we're, we want to maintain long-term relationships. And one of the other things that's really important is to actually return results to the participants. So as much as possible, we've tried to do that. I actually just got an email a few days ago from a person from one of the groups that we studied in Kenya back in 2004 and 2006. And we had left our contact information. They wrote and said, you know, we'd like to get an update. And I said, sure, this is great. So that's also important to do. And um, you have to just respect local cultures and beliefs. And you can't be coercive. So we don't pay uh, money to people to participate. We might give a small thank you gift, but nothing that would be so much that they feel pressured to do this. And what's reassuring to me is that a lot of people choose not to. And so that's actually a good sign <laughs> that they're not being forced to do that. And when you are doing this research, engaging with communities, finding things out, how do they respond? What do they want to know? How do they take this kind of interesting work that you're doing? So it really depends on the population. But to me, what's interesting is that in many of the African populations that we've studied, they have a particular interest in history and ancestry. So that's not always the case. Native American populations or oceanic populations may have concerns about that. We did not find that. In fact, I did a uh, workshop with an anthropologist in Tsumkwe in Namibia, and there are a number of San populations in that area. And he organized this working group to explain to the population what the geneticists are doing and why they're doing it and what the results are. And it was great because they had translators and they would translate everything into the local language and there was plenty of time to ask questions and things like that. But at the end, when we asked, what would you like? Like, what would you like out of this? And basically they wanted essentially an ancestry test. They wanted, you know, like a 23andMe result. And we explained that that's a problem. We can't give individual results because another concern is paternity issues. And so it would be unethical at this point to give back uh, individual information. So we give information at the level of the population. That's all for now. If you want to listen to the full versions of any of these shows, just check out the links in the show notes or head to the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. We'll be republishing a few episodes from Series 1 over the Christmas break, and we'll be back in January with new shows. Please do drop us a line at podcast at geneticsunzipped.com or on Twitter at geneticsunzip with your ideas and suggestions for what you'd like to see us cover in 2021. And in the meantime, there's going to be a few more episodes of Genetics Shambles to fill your ears. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.